Chapter Twenty One, Part One of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty One, The States General of the Fourteenth Century, Part One. Let us turn back a little, in order to understand the government and the position of King John before he engaged in the war which, so far as he was concerned, ended with the Battle of Poitiers and imprisonment in England. A valiant and loyal knight, but a frivolous, hare-brained, thoughtless, prodigal, and obstinate as well as impetuous prince, and even more incapable than Philip of Valois in the practice of government, John, after having summoned at his accession, in 1351, a state's assembly concerning which we have no explicit information left to us, tried for a space of four years to suffice in himself for all the perils, difficulties, and requirements of the situation he had found bequeathed to him by his father. For a space of four years, in order to get money, he debased the coinage, confiscated the goods and securities of foreign merchants, and stopped payment of his debts, and he went through several provinces, treating with local councils or magistrates in order to obtain from them certain subsidies, which he purchased by granting them new privileges. He hoped by his institution of the Order of the Star to resuscitate the chivalrous zeal of his nobility. All these means were vain or insufficient. The defeat of Cressy and the loss of Calais had caused discouragement in the kingdom and aroused many doubts as to the issue of the war with England. Defection and even treason brought trouble into the court, the councils, and even the family of John. To get the better of them he at one time heaped favours upon the men he feared, at another he had them arrested, imprisoned, and even beheaded in his presence. He gave his daughter Joan in marriage to Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, and some few months afterwards, Charles himself, the real or presumed head of all the traitors, was seized, thrown into prison, and treated with extreme rigour, in spite of the supplications of his wife, who vigorously took the part of her husband against her father. After four years thus consumed in fruitless endeavours, by turns violently and feebly enforced, to reorganise an army and a treasury, and to purchase fidelity at any price, or arbitrarily strike down treason, John was obliged to recognise his powerlessness, and to call to his aid the French nation, still so imperfectly formed, by convoking at Paris for the 30th of November, 1355, the States-General of Languedoc, that is, northern France, separated by the Dourgogne and the Garonne from Languedoc, which had its own assembly district. Auvergne belonged to Languedoc. It is certain that neither this assembly nor the king who convoked it had any clear and fixed idea of what they were meeting together to do. The kingship was no longer competent for its own government and its own perils, but insisted none the less, in principle, on its own all but unregulated and unlimited power. The assembly did not claim for the country the right of self-government, but it had a strong leaven of patriotic sentiment, and at the same time was very much discontented with the king's government. It had equally at heart the defence of France against England and against the abuses of the kingly power. There was no notion of a social struggle and no systematic idea of political revolution. A dangerous crisis and intolerable sufferings constrained king and nation to come together in order to make an attempt at an understanding and at mutual exchange of the supports and the reliefs of which they were in need. On the 2nd of December, 1355, the three orders, the clergy, the nobility, and the deputies from the towns, assembled at Paris in the great hall of the Parliament. 
Peter de la Forest, Archbishop of Rouen and Chancellor of France, asked them in the king's name to consult together about making him a subvention, which should suffice for the expenses of the war, and the king offered to make a sound and durable coinage. The tampering with the coinage was the most pressing of the grievances for which the three orders solicited a remedy. They declared that they were ready to live and die with the king, and to put their bodies in what they had at his service, and they demanded authority to deliberate together, which was granted them. John de Crayon, Archbishop of Rheims, Walter de Brienne, Duke of Athens, and Stephen Marcel, Provost of the Tradesmen of Paris, were to report the result, as presidents, each of his own order. The session of the States lasted not more than a week. They replied to the king that they would give him a subvention of thirty thousand men-at-arms every year, and for their pay they voted an impost of fifty hundred thousand livres, five millions of livres, which was to be levied on all folks, of whatever condition they might be, church folks, nobles, or others, and the gable or tax on salt over the whole kingdom of France. On separating, the states appointed beforehand two fresh sessions at which they would assemble, one in the month of March, to estimate the sufficiency of the impost, and to hear, on that subject, the report of the nine superintendents charged with the execution of their decision, the other, in the month of November following, to examine into the condition of the kingdom. They assembled, in fact, on the 1st of March, and on the 8th of May, 1356. As the year at that time began with Easter, the 24th of April was the first day of the year 1356. The new style, however, is here in every case adopted. But they had not the satisfaction of finding their authority generally recognized, and their patriotic purpose effectually accomplished. The imposts they had voted, notably the salt tax, had met with violent opposition. When the news thereof reached Normandy, says Froissart, the country was very much astounded at it, for they had not learned to pay any such thing. The Count de Harcourt told the folks of Rouen, where he was puissant, that they would be very serfs and very wicked if they agreed to this tax, and that by God's help it should never be current in his country. The King of Navarre used much the same language in his countship of Evro. At other spots the mischief was still more serious. Close to Paris itself, at Maloun, payment was peremptorily refused and at Arras, on the 5th of March, 1356, the commonality of the town, says Froissart, rose upon the rich burghers and slew fourteen of the most substantial, which was a pity and loss. So it is when wicked folk have the upper hand of valiant men. However, the people of Arras paid for it afterwards, for the king sent thither his cousin, my lord James of Bourbon, who gave orders to take all them by whom the sedition had been caused, and on the spot had their heads cut off. The States-General, at their reassembly on the 1st of March, 1356, admitted the feebleness of their authority and the insufficiency of their preceding votes for the purpose of aiding the King in war. They abolished the salt-tax and the sales-duty, which had met with such opposition, but staunch in their patriotism and loyalty, they substituted therefore an income-tax, imposed on every sort of folk, nobles or burghers, ecclesiastical or lay, which was to be levied not by the high justiciers of the King, but by the folks of the three estates themselves. The king's ordinance, dated the 12th of March, 1356, which regulates the execution of these different measures, is to this import. There shall be, in each city, three deputies, one for each estate. These deputies shall appoint, in each parish, collectors, who shall go into the houses to receive the declaration which the persons who dwell there shall make touching their property, their estate, and their servants. 
when a declaration shall appear in conformity with truth, they shall be content therewith, else they shall have him who has made it set before the deputies of the city in the district whereof he dwells, and the deputies shall cause him to take, on this subject, such oaths as they shall think proper. The collectors in the villages shall cause to be taken therein, in the presence of the pastor, suitable oaths on the subject of the declarations. If in the towns or villages any one refuse to take the oaths demanded, the collectors shall assess his property according to general opinion, and on the deposition of his neighbors. In return for so loyal and persevering a cooperation on the part of the states-general, notwithstanding the obstacles encountered by their votes and their agents, King John confirmed expressly, by an ordinance of May 26, 1356, all the promises he had made them, and all the arrangements he had entered into with them by his ordinance of December 28, 1355, given immediately after their first session, a veritable reformatory ordinance, which enumerated the various royal abuses, administrative, judicial, financial, and military, against which there had been a public clamor, and regulated the manner of redressing them. After these mutual concessions and promises the States-General broke up, adjourning until the 30th of November following, 1356. But two months and a half before this time, King John, proud of some success obtained by him in Normandy, and of the brilliant army of knights remaining to him, after he had dismissed the burgher forces, rushed, as has been said, with conceited impetuosity to encounter the Prince of Wales, rejected with insolent demands the modest proposals of withdrawal made him by the commander of the little English army, and on the 19th of September, lost, contrary to all expectation, the lamentable battle of Poitiers. We have seen how he was deserted before the close of the action by his eldest son, Prince Charles, with his body of troops, and how he himself remained with his youngest son, Prince Philip, a boy of fourteen years, a prisoner in the hands of his victorious enemies. At this news, says Froissart, the kingdom of France was greatly troubled and excited, and with good cause, for it was a right grievous blow and vexatious for all sorts of folk. The wise men of the kingdom might well predict that great evils would come of it, for the king, their head, and all the chivalry of the kingdom were slain or taken. The knights and squires who came back home were on that account so hated and blamed by the commoners that they had great difficulty in gaining admittance to the good towns, and the king's three sons who had returned, Charles, Louis, and John, were very young in years and experience, and there was in them such small resource that none of the said lads liked to undertake the government of the said kingdom. The eldest of the three, Prince Charles, aged nineteen, who was called the Dauphin, after the cession of Dauphiny to France, nevertheless assumed the office, in spite of his youth and his anything but glorious retreat from Poitiers. He took the title of Lieutenant of the King, and had hardly re-entered Paris, on the twenty-ninth of September, when he summoned, for the fifteenth of October, the States-General of Langdoy, who met, in point of fact, on the seventeenth, in the great chamber of the Parliament. Never was seen, says the report of their meeting, an assembly so numerous, or composed of wiser folk. The superior clergy were there almost to a man. The nobility had lost too many in front of Poitiers to be abundant at Paris, but there were counted at the assembly four hundred deputies from the good towns, amongst whom special mention is made, in the documents, of those from Amiens, Tournay, Lille, Arras, Troy, Auxerre, and Seine. The total number of members at the assembly amounted to more than eight hundred. The session was opened by a speech from the Chancellor, Peter de la Forest, 
who called upon the estates to aid the Dauphin with their counsels under the serious and melancholy circumstances of the kingdom. The three orders at first attempted to hold their deliberations each in a separate hall, but it was not long before they felt the inconveniences arising from their number and their separation, and they resolved to choose from amongst each order commissioners, who should examine the questions together, and afterwards make their report and their proposals to the general meeting of the estates. Eighty commissioners were accordingly elected, and set themselves to work. The Dauphin appointed some of his officers to be present at their meetings, and to furnish them with such information as they might require. As early as the second day, these officers were given to understand that the deputies would not work whilst anybody belonging to the king's council was with them. So the officers withdrew, and a few days afterwards, towards the end of October 1356, the commissioners reported the result of their conferences to each of the three orders. The General Assembly adopted their proposals, and had the Dauphin informed that they were desirous of a private audience. Charles repaired with some of his counsellors to the monastery of the Cordelier, where the estates were holding their sittings, and there he received their representations. They demanded of him that he should deprive of their offices such of the king's counsellors as they should point out, have them arrested, and confiscate all their property. Twenty-two men of note, the chancellor, the premier president of the parliament, the king's stewards, and several officers in the household of the Dauphin himself were thus pointed out. They were accused of having taken part to their own profit in all the abuses for which the government was reproached, and of having concealed from the king the true state of things and the misery of the people. The commissioners elected by the estates were to take proceedings against them. If they were found guilty, they were to be punished, and if they were innocent, they were at the very least to forfeit their offices and their property, on account of their bad counsels and their bad administration. The chronicles of the time are not agreed as to these last demands. We have, as regards the events of this period, two contemporary witnesses, both full of detail, intelligence, and animation in their narratives, namely, Froissart and the continuer of William of Nongus's Latin chronicle. Froissart is in general favorable to kings and princes. The anonymous chronicler, on the contrary, has a somewhat passionate bias towards the popular party. Probably both of them are often given to exaggeration in their assertions and impressions, but taking into account none but undisputed facts, it is evident that the claims of the states-general, though they were for the most part legitimate enough at bottom, by reason of the number, gravity, and frequent recurrence of abuses, were excessive and violent, and produced the effect of complete suspension in the regular course of government and justice. The Dauphin, Charles, was a young man, of a naturally sound and collected mind, but without experience, who had hitherto lived only in his father's court, and who could not help being deeply shocked and disquieted by such demands. He was still more troubled when the estates demanded that the deputies, under the title of reformers, should traverse the provinces as a check upon the malversions of the royal officials, and that twenty-eight delegates, chosen from amongst the three orders, four prelates, twelve knights, and twelve burgesses, should be constantly placed near the king's person, with power to do and order everything in the kingdom, just like the king himself, as well for the purpose of appointing and removing officers as for other matters. It was taking away the entire government from the crown, and putting it into the hands of the estates. The Dauphin's surprise and suspicion were still more vivid when the deputies spoke to him about setting at liberty the King of Navarre, who had been imprisoned by King John, and told him that, since this deed of violence, no good had come to the king or the kingdom, because of the sin of having imprisoned the said King of Navarre. 
and yet Charles the Bad was already as infamous as he has remained in history. He had laboured to embroil the Dauphin with his royal father, and there was no plot or intrigue, whether with the malcontents in France or with the King of England, in which he was not, with good reason, suspected of having been mixed up, and of being ever ready to be mixed up. He was clearly a dangerous enemy for the public peace, as well as for the crown, and for the states-general, who were demanding his release, a bad associate. In the face of such demands and such forebodings, the Dauphin did all he could to gain time. Before he gave an answer he must know, he said, what subvention the states-general would be willing to grant him. The reply was a repetition of the promise of thirty thousand men-at-arms, together with an enumeration of the several taxes, whereby there was a hope of providing for the expense. But the produce of these taxes was so uncertain, that both parties doubted the worth of the promise. Careful calculation went to prove that the subvention would suffice, at the very most, for the keep of no more than eight or nine thousand men. The estates were urgent for a speedy compliance with their demands. The Dauphin persisted in his policy of delay. He was threatened with a public and solemn session, at which all the questions should be brought before the people, and which was fixed for the 3rd of November. Great was the excitement at Paris, and the people showed a disposition to support the estate at any price. On the 2nd of November the Dauphin summoned at the Louvre a meeting of his councillors and of the principal deputies, and there he announced that he was obliged to set out for Metz, where he was going to follow up the negotiations entered into with the Emperor Charles the Fourth and Pope Innocent the Sixth for the sake of restoring peace between France and England. He added that the deputies, on returning for a while to their provinces, should get themselves enlightened as to the real state of affairs, and that he would not fail to recall them so soon as he had any important news to tell them, and any assistance to request of them. End of chapter 21, part 1